So, I mean, we can start anytime um, it's rolling. Um, and, you know, we can just sort of go for, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes. We'll just see how it feels. Okay. Welcome to Part of the Planet, a podcast about our changing planet and what we're doing to manage that change. I'm Hugh Lee, your host, and I'm joined by two of my colleagues from the Earth Institute's Communications Department, Kevin Krejcik, who is the senior writer, science writer for uh, for the Earth Institute, and Sarah Fecht, who is the managing editor for the blog, the State of the Planet blog. Um, I just call it managing editor. That's like old school kind of newspaper talk. <laughs> I'm okay with exactly. that. It's technically content manager, but it's kind yeah, of the same yeah. thing, right? Yeah, I like managing editor. Anyway, um, welcome guys. How are you doing today? Good. Pretty good. Yeah, uh, really glad that both you guys can join me. We are celebrating today International Women's Day and um, encouraging all of our listeners, if you haven't already, to go to our State of the Planet uh, blog. Um, there's some fantastic content uh, coming out today that uh, covers a whole range of uh, issues and really highlighting the work of our women researchers here at the Earth Institute. Just a few things that are um, that are being uh, posted today. You know, uh, we have a researcher, her name is uh, Julie Marino Carella, and she talks about um, how the energy sector needs to be more welcoming for women. Um, a couple other posts include a fifth grader's perspective commemorating the pioneering work of Marie Tharp. And uh, yeah, a lot of other things as well, including work coming out of our Women and Peace and Security program and a number of profiles of other top researchers here at the Earth Institute. And not to mention, of course, this podcast, which features uh, Kevin's interview with Ruth DeFries on her new book, What Would Nature Do? But before we get into that, let's delve into the world of CO2, carbon dioxide, and more specifically, a couple posts that came out of the State of the Planet uh, blog over the past couple of weeks. First had to do with uh, CO2 and dinosaur migration and how it affected their movements across the continents. And the second was on just generally CO2 and how does it trap heat and, you know, and cause global warming, um, a little bit of a technical look at the chemistry behind, behind all that. Um, so Sarah, take it away. Sure. Yeah. I loved writing this story because dinosaurs. <laughs> um, so this was a study that was led by Dennis Kent, who works with us at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory and also has a position at Rutgers University. So what Dennis and his co-author did is they um, they found a more precise date for when this plant-eating type of dinosaur called a sauropodomorph arrived in North America. Mm -hmm. and, arrived from, um, from where? So, so this, this type of dinosaur first appeared in South America, in Argentina and Brazil. Yeah. And by like matching up different layers of sediments, they realized that these dinosaurs don't really show up in North America until Greenland 214 million years ago. Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting to them because they actually show up in South America 230 million years ago. So there's a big time gap there. Like, why did it take them 
15 million years to get from Brazil to Greenland, right? Like, okay, it's kind of a long walk, but what Dennis said was even a snail could do that faster. So what was holding them up? So this is like a totally different shaped, uh, you know, planet at the, at the time, obviously too, right? We're talking about the continents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. This was um, during Pangaea. So all of the continents were kind of globbed together near the equator roundabouts. Um, so, so what Dennis and his co-author did was they, they actually looked at the climate record and they found that right around the time that these dinosaurs show up in Greenland, there was a big dip in CO2 in the atmosphere. So before that, it was about 4,000 parts per million, which is really, really high. And uh, during the dip, it got down to about 2,000. And what they're thinking is that we know with climate change today that as CO2 goes up and the planet gets hotter, um, climates become more extreme. So the wet gets wetter and the dry gets drier. And they're thinking that maybe these dinosaurs couldn't cross the sort of equatorial regions. Like Mm. maybe the desert belts were too dry and too hot. And maybe the tropical regions were too wet. They might have been subject to a lot of storms. So their hypothesis, which this could just be pure coincidence, by the way. But what they think happened is that as the CO2 started to dip, those climate belts sort of sort of started to level out and maybe there was enough vegetation in those dry areas that these Mm. sauropodomorphs could cross it and make their way all the way up to Greenland. Very cool. It's like truly the grass is greener on the other side as the the temperature, (laughs) the CO2 levels drop. Kevin, you've been to Greenland. Uh, Didn't didn't take you 15 million years to get there, right? Yeah. (laughs) No. No, it took a couple of days though. You have to go to Iceland first and then fly back. Right. right. Um, no, it sounds uh, a really cool story uh, I, for, for all people interested in not just dinosaurs, but obviously um, climate and, and that. And, you know, CO2 obviously has a, a huge impact on, on uh, all these, you know, processes. I thought the other story on just how CO2 causes global warming and traps heat that, um, that, that you put together um, you were, I mean, it was, it was a question that was asked of professor, uh, Jason Smearden, um, of, you know, a co-host of this program who we will have on very soon. Do you want to channel, uh, Jason a, a little bit, Sarah, and talk about how he answered that question? Yeah, I'll do my best. This one's harder because it's not dinosaurs. It's physics and chemistry. But basically on the blog, we get a lot of questions wondering, like, how exactly does CO2 work? And there's there's really very little of it in the atmosphere overall. It only makes up about 0.04% of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So people have been wondering, how does it really have this big of an impact? So to talk about how it works, we have to think about chemical bonds between the atoms in these molecules, right? So most of the atmosphere is oxygen and nitrogen, and those are really simple molecules. It's just an oxygen and an oxygen bonded together. It's not really very flexible. It's a pretty sturdy molecule. Same thing with nitrogen. But with greenhouse gases, those are more complicated. So CO2, that has a carbon and two oxygens. Mm -hmm. Um, Methane has a carbon and four hydrogens. Um, Because these are more complicated, they can interact with 
different types of wavelengths. And the wavelength we're interested in for climate change is infrared waves. Um, So these are very like big kind of like wavy waves. Um, They're kind of lazy looking. They don't Mm -hmm. pack a lot of energy into a small area like sunlight does, for example. Mm -hmm. So what happens is sunlight comes in, it's not interacting with any of these molecules, but when it hits the surface of the earth, it sort of like bounces back as infrared heat. Mm -hmm. Well, we would call it heat, right? And those heat waves are going up into the atmosphere And oxygen and nitrogen are just like not interested in interacting with this. Like they don't really have a way to respond to it because they're kind of like rigid is how I think of them. But with CO2, it's kind of of wobblier (laughs) Mm. Uh, if you want to think of it that way. So it's got more moving parts. There are more things it can do to bend and twist and rotate and interact with that infrared energy. Mm-hmm. And as it does that, it's also like emitting its own infrared energy, its own kind of heat, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah. And that heat, some of it's going out to space and some of it's getting reflected back to Earth. And that's where the greenhouse effect happens. Nice. Um, and that's the basic gist of how CO2 works. It's definitely more complicated than that. And yeah, Jason could it, explain yeah. this better than me. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that, that was, that was great, Sarah. And, um, thanks for that little trip back down to, you know, high school chemistry memory lane. My, I feel like my chemistry teacher would be very <laughs> proud. It, it's a, it's a, it's a lot to kind of unpack, but at, at the same time, um, really important information for, for all of us to understand. And, and the fact that, uh, you know, this is you know, for the most part, why we're doing the work that we're doing. Um, getting to Kevin, Kevin uh, did an amazing interview with uh, Ruth DeFries, um, who is a, uh, Kevin, I mean, I'll let you talk about her. Who is Ruth? How, and yeah, what is, so yeah. Ruth is a, um, I guess you would describe her as an environmental geographer. She studies how humans interact with the surface of the earth and how we, how we um, change it in very large ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, you know, she's written a couple of books now <clears throat> about, um, basically about human history and how, how we've affected, uh, the earth. Her, her latest one is called what would nature do? Yep. And it's, it's basic argument is that, you know, in order to survive for us to survive as, as the human race, we probably should stop biting nature quite as much and, mm-hmm. and try to imitate it. So that, that's, that was the basic thrust. Of that interview, this book just came out uh, about a month or two ago. I, I love the title. It's kind of, I mean, it's a play on kind of like what would Jesus do, right? And and I think I remember when I was a, a kid or, or at some point in college, we used to always have this joke like, "What would Captain Picard do?" Who was the captain of the uh, Star Trek? Because he always had the right answers for me. I don't know if you guys ever did anything like that, but um, yeah, no, no, the the interview was great, and and I, one of the things I really uh, enjoyed about it was uh, you guys had a lot of um, sort of shared connections and shared experiences, you really jumped around from different stories that spanned everything from, you know, your trip to India to, um, you know, the first moon landing and, and, and so forth. I was wondering, was there a particular um, anecdote or, or a story that, that she had that really resonated with you, Kevin? Yeah, well, one of the things that I, I noticed that we had in common was uh, we both go far enough back that we, back that we we remember the 1969 moon landing. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the book, she says, 
oh, I, you know, I was in summer camp then watching the 1969 moon landing. So when I talked to her, I said, I was there too, watching on the, on black and white TV, just like you sitting on a picnic table. Nice. Um, <laughs> obviously not the same camp. I was in Boy Scouts then. She was yeah. uh, somewhere else. Um, but, you know, it was just kind of a time when we believed that technology could do absolutely everything. And, you know, we were going to solve all our problems with technology, um, which we actually have solved a lot of problems and done a lot of great things uh, since 1969. But I think we're also finding that technology has its limits and also, you know, can be kind of dangerous. We need to um, maybe not use certain technologies or at least not use them in certain ways yep. and uh, try to, you know, try to do things more the way that nature would do instead of manipulating it. Let's, let's imitate it. Right. I mean, yes, certainly the um, kind of unintended consequences of, of our actions, uh, we have to be mindful of, of what's, what's happening and we're, we're definitely living through it. Uh, that, that shared experience I thought was um, a nice touching moment in your interview. It kind of made me think a little bit about what we're going through now. And obviously the pan living through the pandemic is not a, a hopeful inspirational moment, but it could be considered something that, um, you know, builds a, a certain generational resilience, I think. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious to see how, you know, I have, I have kids, you have, you have a, you have kids, um, what they're going to be, how, how they're going to remember this, this moment in time. Um, do, do you feel, I, do you guys talked a, a little bit about the pandemic, right? Uh, do, do you feel like it's important to kind of recognize these moments and, and what, the sort of like our response to them in the future might be like to them. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, anybody who's old enough remembers where they were when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon. Yeah. Um, everybody who's old enough remembers where they were when nine 11 happened. Um, and similarly, I think, you know, my kids are going to remember the pandemic for the rest of their lives. I certainly will. And, you know, it's nobody knows where we're going after this. Um, you know, Ruth, Ruth is kind of an optimist. She, her, her idea is that whatever happens, we're going to figure it out. Yeah. And, you know, obviously we've had this miracle um, development of vaccine within less than a year, something that used to take, you know, many years or even a decade. We've actually done this. So, you know, on that level, at least for this example, she's right. Um, I'm sort of more of a survivalist, you know, I'm not so sure. <laughs> that's why, I, that's why we have a country house that we go to with a, you know, hand pumped well and a, a wood stove. So that we can survive. Don't let everyone know that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't give out the address. I'm not giving okay. out the address. <laughs> um, so yeah, thanks again, guys, for for joining this uh, this brief discussion. Um, and without further ado, let's get into your excellent interview with Ruth. Take care. Thanks, thanks Jim. Ruth DeFreeze, welcome to Pod of the Planet. How are you? Thank you, Kevin. Great to be here. I'm I'm just fine. And you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. So uh, we're here to talk about your new book. It's called What Would Nature Do? Um, but I'd like actually to start with your previous book. It's called The Big Ratchet. Um, and you and I discussed that book in 2014 when it came out. It's a while back now. Um, if I can try and summarize, The Big Ratchet was about how humans have always manipulated nature. It's, it's how we feed ourselves. We deal with diseases and just generally get along. Um, but at this point, it seems like things have gotten so complicated. Um, there's so many of us, we got to stop fighting nature and try imitating it a little more. That's what I think, what would nature do is about. Is that, is that fair enough? 
Yeah, that's very fair. So the big ratchet was about how for so long humans have been so ingenious to be able to come up with all kinds of technologies to produce more and more food and support more and more people. And in the process of being so ingenious, we solve problems, but we also uh, create problems. So our solutions create problems. And then we have new solutions that uh, that create new problems. And that is just our our the way we are as humans being so ingenious enough to create problems and ingenious enough to solve them. And we're just in this perpetual cycle. So the big ratchet is really about how we've, we have been so ingenious in the last, uh, the last century to produce so much food, but also that has created a new set of problems, environmental problems and social problems and, uh, and so on. So, this new book, What Would Nature Do, really picks up from there is that if we think about this process of of creating and solving problems is um, is this, I call it a ratchet hatchet pivot. We're in this pivot moment that we live in such a complex system that we have created. We are so interconnected in this world that problems ricochet around. We've seen this with the pandemic uh, that uh, is it. Can we learn from nature about how to how to persist under uncertainty? And that's what the book is about, thinking about the strategies that nature has used for billions of years to survive under uncertainty and how those strategies might apply to the way we think about organizing our human affairs. Right. Yeah. So you talk about things like um, high yield crop varieties, global trade, internet, these things all tie us together, right? Much, much more than in the past. But at the same time, we have this sort of giant artificial ecosystem subject to a giant upset. If something goes wrong in the clockwork, the monkey wrench gets thrown in and, you know, there's a failure all along the line. Um, so um, can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the the funny thing is that the more we seem to be disconnected from nature, living in cities, the more we really are connected to nature because we are relying on distant places for our food, for energy, for water, for disposing our waste. So we are in our urban world so tied to the hinterlands. Every place is tied together. So we live in this complex, what scientists would call complex adaptive systems, where a tweak in one part just ricochets throughout and cascades and uh, changes the, the system. Then another part of the system adapts to that change, and it just sets off this unpredictable complexity. And we see that uh, that complex system in so many things, in the economy, in global food trade, in the way that uh, diseases spread around the world. Okay. So that said, um, let's get to one of the elephants in the room right up front. Um, you pretty much wrote this book before the pandemic. Um, has, has the pandemic changed your thinking at all, or does it just provide more evidence for your argument? And, you know, how should we be dealing with that? Yeah, it is uh, true. I was sending in the final manuscript for this book the week in March that the pandemic was hitting us and we were seeing the shutdowns 
just that week. And it's completely coincidental. And I had written this book over the last five, six years. And um, I spent some time in the book uh, trying to be convincing that these kinds of uncertain, unpredictable events can happen and have happened in history. And we can expect them to happen more frequently in the future. So just as I was sending in this book, we have a, a, a very clear example. <laughs> and I had to scramble to put in a little bit more about the pandemic into the book. I put it into the prologue and I tried to scatter it in a little bit, but, um, but it is just purely coincidental and a bit ironic. Well, you talk about um, several mechanisms that, that nature uses to, to make itself more resilient. And I don't, I don't, I'm not sure we can get to all of them, but among them, you talk about um, decisions that are made from the bottom up. Um, you talk about, diversity, biodiversity, and how that kind of counteracts disasters that could wipe out everything. And you talk about um, redundancy over efficiency. And, and I think one example you talk about there would be um, the, leave, the, uh, the veins and leaves where, you know, they have these very complex networks, many, many connections between each little part of it. There's no one connection that gets cut off that would, that would destroy everything. So maybe you could just um, talk about that a little bit and give us a few examples of how we could learn from these these natural mechanisms. Yeah, so the book goes through four strategies that nature uses to persist through uncertainty, such as extinctions and asteroids crashing into the earth and all of these unpredictable events that, that have uh, happened over the course of, of life on earth, but life has continued to persist. Uh, so one of those strategies is the um, the way that nature, uh, the way that evolution has, uh, has identified the strategy that enables water and things to flow over networks. So if you look at a leaf vein, if you pick up a vein and, uh, look at it very carefully, you will see the, uh, the lots of microscopic veins that loop around and go in all kinds of directions and it looks messy and it doesn't look like a very efficient way to move water and sugars throughout a leaf. But the beauty of that is that if there is damage in any part of the leaf, like an insect bite or a tear in some part of that vein network, then there are many, many different ways. There's many loops and ways to get from point A to point B in, uh, in the leaf. And this is work that's been done by uh, physicists and network scientists to uh, identify that that strategy is not the most efficient in terms of the least number of leaves, uh, leaf veins to move water and energy, but it is resilient in case of damage. Right. And are there um, are there human systems that kind of don't work that way that have gotten mucked up? Well, the human tendency is to create efficient networks that have a few hubs and a lot of folks think about an airline network that has a, a hub in one place. So that's efficient. But if something happens to that hub, then the whole system goes down. 
So that's kind of the, 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 the human tendency is to create these kinds of efficient networks. But there are examples of how people have learned, important examples of how people have learned that the extra investment, even though it might not appear efficient, is worth the, the cost to protect against damage. There's a story. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, tell me about that. So yeah. there's a story in the book about Paul Barron, who is hailed as the father of the internet. I love this story. When he was a young engineer working for RAND, he was advising the uh, AT&T and the Defense Department, this is during the Cold War, on the communications network strategy. So this was the idea that in case of a, an attack, then computers needed to talk to each other. So how do you create that communications network? And he proposed uh, a network similar to a leaf vein network with having redundancies and these kind of loopy structures. Now, the problem with that is that it's, uh, it, it costs. It costs in extra transmission lines. So Paul Barron presented this idea of a loopy network that required some investment in, in extra transmission lines. And he was a young engineer. He was laughed out of the room. He was not taken seriously at all. He continued to work on this problem. He produced different reports. They sat on shelves. And then when the father of the, the, the um, parents of the internet came along, they uh, they identified his strategy, and that's really what made the internet possible: is to have these multiple routes to to send information, so the network doesn't get uh, clogged. So this is probably my favorite, or one of my favorite stories in the book. Yeah, and obviously, um, it kind of worked, right? Well, I think so. We have a very functional internet. Well, that's one good thing in our favor, I think. Um, although there are probably other systems that are not really designed that way. Yeah. So the global food trade is, uh, is a counter example where we have food produced in a few places around the world, the U S Russia, Australia, a few hubs of major cereal production and many people in the world rely on those few places. So that's an example of a network which has a, a few hubs and a lot of spokes. And it's gotten over the decades more and more concentrated. Yeah. And I think it's become even more worrisome right now uh, in the midst of the pandemic. I know that there are other researchers looking into this. Um, hunger is growing in various places because not because there's not enough food, but because distribution networks are breaking down People don't have the income to export or import food from other places. So here's something in real time, you know, that's going on right now. Yes, definitely. So there is more than enough food to feed everybody in this world. But it's, as you say, whether people can have access and get that food. So particularly, particularly the um, urban poor who are dependent on getting their food from imports, either within the country or from outside the country where they live, who spend a very high proportion of their income on food. So when a uh, prices spike because of some 
drought or some policy or something happens in some place very far from them, then they suffer. Yeah, exactly. Um, so here's another elephant in the room. It's the, it's the U.S. electoral system. I'm, I'm almost, almost exhausted of thinking about it, um, but I, I feel like I need to bring it up. Um, it could be argued that it has a lot of the features that, that nature does. You know, it's got bottom-up decision-making. It's based on individual voters. It's got huge diversity. Every state has some kind of different voting rules. Uh, it's got redundancy over efficiency because the you know elections are actually run by counties. That's not efficient. But if you know one county commissioner is corrupt, doesn't necessarily happen in the next county. Um, seems pretty strong. You know, on the other hand, we got the electoral college. Uh, some people could construe that as a fatal weakness. It's the monkey wrench that can turn the election upside down, and uh, you know elect the candidate. Most people didn't even vote for that. It's happened already, right? Um, I don't know if you thought about this. Um, how well does the American politi political system emulate nature? And are there ways that we could do it better? Yeah. So one of the four strategies is in the book is uh, self-correcting mechanisms. So this is the idea that nature throughout nature, there are so many examples where there's some kind of self-regulating feature that keeps the system uh, oscillating, but in balance, not going out of, out of safe limits. So an example of this is blood sugar, uh, insulin, the pancreas producing insulin when blood sugar is high, and then that insulin slows down when the blood sugar goes down, and then another hormone comes up. So we have this kind of um, blood sugar that oscillates, but within safe bounds. So that kind of mechanism is very ubiquitous in nature and even global scale processes for how uh, uh, carbon moves in and out of the atmosphere. Yeah. So do, do our elections have a kind of pancreas or, you know, are there some holes in there? That, uh, yeah. We so, so we can think about that. It's, it's the checks and balances in our in our system oh. and in our bureaucracy. So it seems quite messy, inefficient annoying to have these kinds of redundancies and checks and balances. But as you said, in this situation that we are in with this last election in these last um, four years, these checks and balances really show their, show their worth. So, so you're talking, yeah, you're talking about not just the election, but um, you know, the fact that we have uh, a Senate, a uh, House of Representatives, we have courts, et cetera. Yeah. And we have democracy. Democracy is a system of, of a self-regulating mechanism, hopefully, uh, with checks and balances. So <laughs> it's it's the public opinion, which is uh, self-correcting. Yep. Makes sense. Um, in one part of the book, I, I found out we have something unusual in common. And I, I bet you can't guess what it is. Hmm. No, you don't have to go. You don't, you don't have to guess. New York. Uh, no, uh, no, no, no. You and I both watched the 1969 moon landing live on black and white TV in our summer camp mess hall. Uh, uh, not, the, not the same summer camp. I was in Boy Scouts. I, I don't think you were there, but you were somewhere sharing this moment with me, right? Yes. Isn't that a moment that is so etched into our generation's consciousness? I think uh, most people can remember where they were at that moment. It's so vivid. I just remember yeah. sitting on the table, the picnic table, watching the black and white uh, screen with the moon landing. And that's that in the book is uh, 
is a segue to the discussion of Biosphere 2, which is this incredible yeah. place in the right. desert. Biosphere 2, right. Another kind of, uh, you know, sort of hopeful, optimistic idea that, you know, with human ingenuity could could like do anything. That's why I'm bringing up the moon landing moment, because it seemed like at that time when, you know, when we were younger, uh, human ingenuity seemed unlimited. This feels a little different now. How the heck did we get from there to here? That's that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. So the last century or the last half of the century really did have some incredible um, technological feats, producing so much food, uh, vaccines, public health. I mean, some really important uh, human advances. And that lulled us into thinking that uh, that any problem we have, we can come up with a technological solution and then move on to the next problem. But in the course of the 20th century, there has been you know, urbanization to the extent that has never occurred before in human history and connectedness among um, people. All and places all over the world, and people depend on this complex system of delivery and networks and information flows for their very survival. So this is, I think, something new. The extent of this dependence on this complex network is new to our human way of being. And that makes us living in, that makes our human civilization a complex system where we have um, feedbacks that occur and we can't predict. I mean, who would have predicted last March that we would have been in this situation with the pandemic so many months uh, later? So we're living now in this very unpredictable, uh, complex system. And then you layer on top of that climate change. Another uh series of unpredictable ways that that is going to play out with extreme climate events that then lead to um, impacts on people and political repercussions. And uh, we can't even imagine how, uh, how this is all going to play out. So we live in this uncertain world. And that's, that's where the book is coming from, that nature has also lived in an uncertain world. So let's think about different kinds of strategies that don't rely as much on the paradigm of efficiency and technological fixes as as is in our way of thinking coming out of the last century. Right. And um, I'm remembering your husband is from India and you actually live part time in India. It's a pretty rural area with a lot of wildlife and people are still living quite close to the land. They're they're growing their own food. Um, they're gathering resources from the forest. It's, it's beautiful. I've been there, as you know. Um, have you taken any lessons from that place or those people? Yeah. So, Kevin, I was so glad you got to visit and to see how beautiful the place is and to appreciate the wildlife and the people. Uh, I've learned so much from the time that I've been able to spend in India, and I feel so fortunate for being able to do that. Um, India is an amazing place. There is so much diversity of languages, of culture, of food, of so much diversity. And it's also a very uh, complex place, a very kind of messy place. 
And I think that's my primary lesson <laughs> from the time that I've been in India is that you, we ha- there's all this messiness. If you walk down a street, you will not, you can't even, you know, comprehend all of the different types of vehicles and the, the different types of people. And it just all seems so incomprehensible and, and, um, messy, but the system functions. It functions through its messiness. Um, So, you know, so is we, so this idea of everything having to be efficient and precise and, uh, you know, hyper engineered. um, What I've learned from India is that systems don't necessarily function that way. They function with diversity. Yeah, you say the in the book the human ability to learn and adapt to changing conditions is it's like a gene bank. It's something that lets us employ different strategies for different circumstances. It's our version of biodiversity. In other words, instead of different species each with their own specialty, we're a single species with many potential specialties, very adaptable. Yeah. So when I was an undergraduate many years ago, uh, I I think it was a class in anthropology and a professor just made a remark. And I don't even remember who the professor was, but it just stuck with me. It just struck me. And whoever it was, thank you, because it really made me think. And what he said was uh, ideas in people work like genes in other animals. So, Yeah. yeah. So our ideas and our ability to communicate and build on ideas is what makes us as a species so um, quick to adapt. Yep, that seems like a fundamentally... Uh... And this is what I see. Yeah. And I see that in this, this, uh, this wonderful place in India that you mentioned, this rural area in the heart of India where people are so incredibly adaptable that, um, that they, they, they figure out different ways to survive different types of jobs, different ways to grow their crops, just out of necessity. Well, that seems like a fundamentally optimistic view. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, all that said, um, you know, there've been other civilizations before us, the Romans, the Maya, they did really well for a while, then they collapsed. Uh, do you think we might go their way? Well, I think this this idea of um, it's not just it's not my idea. It's an idea of, of many <laughs> ecologists that systems, complex systems, go through this process of growth and then uh, some kind of disturbance and and collapse and rebirth. So, if we think about civilization over the long term, that's that's the complex system of, you know, there have been many civilizations that have, that have waned because of some complicated set of influences, whether it's, uh, it's some drought combined with, uh, with, um, governance, uh, very complicated set of, set of reasons why any civilization might, um, collapse. But then we see rebirth of a civilization in in another place. So we in our modern human civilization are uh, certainly a, a complex system. So we can expect it to go through that same kind of process of 
destruction and rebirth and waxing and waning. But the extent to which we can um, limit the hardship that comes from that process is where we can learn these strategies from nature. So if we maintain diversity in our uh, food crops and in our worldviews and in our languages, then we have that as a library to build on to be able to restore. Uh, if we have this self-regulating kinds of checks and balances, then we can we can correct uh, problems in our democracy or problems in our human organization before they become too drastic. And I think that's what we've seen in this last election, hopefully. Um, so it's not that it's not like a either or collapse or not collapse. It's how much hardship there is for people and the planet when when these complex systems inevitably um, go through processes of mm -hmm. waxing and waning. Yeah. So the end might be near, but not the total end. Well, the <laughs> end is the beginning of something else. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, Ruth DeFries, it's a pleasure talking to you. Um, when things get better, and I hope they do, I hope we'll see each other in person again someday, uh, either in India or Manhattan or somewhere in between. Uh, great talking to you, Kevin. Thanks so much. Yep. Yep, the name of Ruth DeFries' book is What Would Nature Do? A Guide for Our Uncertain Times. It's just out from Columbia University Press. <laughs>